I hate to miss out on things. I want to be present at birthday parties. I want to be present on any occasion where cake is served. Uh, I want to be present for celebrations. Um, I just, I just hate not to be where something's happening. I don't know about you, uh, and I and I wonder uh, how Thomas is feeling on the day that Jesus first appears to his disciples and he's not around. Not that I blame him. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why Thomas might have been absent that day, but. Just think, 2,000 years later, people are still remembering that you missed that day. So I don't want to be the one who like misses that kind of a day. I want to read for us a portion of the Gospel from John uh, chapter 20. And these are important words for lots of reasons, but one thing to remember that these are the, the first things to happen on Resurrection Sunday. And so they're really important. They set the tone for everything. Everything that will follow flows from these days, right? And so these are really important verses that we want to listen carefully to do. This is John 20, starting in verse 19. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. John 20, 19. But it was evening on that day the first day of the week. And the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The passage tells us the important part of it. It interprets itself. It reminds us that 
verse 30 and on, that these things and other things were written so that you may come to believe. That's what it says right there in verse 31. But these are written so that you come to believe. John, the apostle who's writing, says, I want you to believe. I want you to know what's true. And these particular things should help you to believe. They should help you to affirm that what we're saying, that Jesus Christ died, that he arose from the dead, that he was seen by witnesses, is all true. But what specifically does John want us to believe? Well, he wants us to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, that Jesus fulfills the Jewish prophetic literature that talks about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is God's Messiah is something that John wants us to believe. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we believe Jesus is God's Messiah? Well, our lives hang in the balance. Only by believing that will we inherit eternal life, according to the Apostle John. That's what verse 31 says. These things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. It's all right there. So the question is, once we affirm that we do believe that, once we've accepted Christ into our lives, once we've been baptized, how do you walk in the belief that Jesus is God's Messiah. What's the next step after you believe these things? And I think if we pay attention to the story, to the way John tells us the details, we can glean from the story some very significant facts about the way we're supposed to live this faith out. It seems to me that there is a progression in this narrative. There's an unfolding step-by-step in this story. Jesus' first word to his disciples is, you heard them several times, peace be with you. I think this means, the first time he says this, it's fine between us. It's fine between us. I mean, if you think about the statement, there's a couple ways to look at it. Is this what the disciples needed to hear? Is is this what Jesus intended for them to absorb? Peace be with you is the traditional greeting for people at this time and in this culture. You didn't walk up and say howdy. You didn't walk up and say what's up. You walked up to them and you said, peace be with you. That was standard greeting. But you have to believe there's so much more than just peace be with you in this initial greeting of Jesus. If you think about all that's happened since the last time they saw him on Thursday night, you have to believe there's more to it than just peace be with you. They may have expected a rebuke. They may have expected distance or coldness from Jesus. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. If someone does something to you that's unkind, and they know it, and you know it, and then you run into each other in the grocery store, 
and you don't exactly know what the first word should be because there's this history of friction between you and that color is what you're about to say. And you don't like just go up there and say, you know, isn't the weather lovely today? You, you, you have to think about what, what that interaction will be. And this is the setting, right? These disciples bailed. They left. They ran away and hid. They're still in hiding on this day. That's why we're told the doors are locked for the fear of the Jews, right? They're in hiding. Jesus broaches the barrier of the locked door and enters there. He goes to the ones who offended him, okay? And he offers peace. They had all deserted. They left Jesus to face the music alone. Yes, it's true that he told them not to fight. He healed the ear of the high priest's servant at the first violent sign of the conflict. And I guess in their mind, they're thinking, if we can't fight, what can we do? There's nothing left for us to do. Just hang around and surrender? It was a confusing time for them. Their hopes were dashed. Their expectations were crushed. And now here is Jesus, and his message is, thankfully, peace. Peace be to you. For every person who has ever failed Jesus, failed to live up to his hopes for them, failed to live up to the promises they made to Jesus in their baptism, failed to live up to the vows they hoped to fulfill, the good news is we can breathe a sigh of relief. Jesus comes alongside and says to us, peace be with you. His words to the disciples are his words to us. Peace be with you. It's good news. Jesus is for us. In spite of everything, Jesus is for us. This isn't a license to fail. This isn't a reason to take his royal command to love our neighbors, to love one another with a smaller degree of seriousness or lightness. But it's good to know that since keeping the law is hard, that Jesus' message to us is peace be with you. And if there's any question about whether Jesus really means this or it's just a greeting, because the disciples have heard this greeting every day of their lives, right? If there's any question, he repeats it. Doesn't say it just once. He repeats it. Then Jesus says, peace again. And this time, he continues with the message. This is step two in the progression. Peace be to you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Peace now is linked to sending. You, you may have thought that the abandonment that the disciples had done previously disqualified them now 
from carrying out the mission of Christ in the world. Not true, apparently. Even though they had failed Jesus, even though they had stumbled, even though they had deserted, Jesus extends his peace and says, we have work to do. I'm sending you. You are being sent. So Jesus offers peace and sends them in his peace. And I want to know, how do you actually walk in peace? You know, we have all these great high-sounding phrases that sound great on Sunday morning in church. But what does walking in peace, I mean, it's not you don't put on your peace shoes and you walk in peace. What does it mean? What does it look like when people actually walk in peace? I have a prayer that I use frequently that goes like this. O Lord, grant me to greet the coming day in peace. Help me in all things to rely upon your holy will. In every hour of the day, reveal your will to me. Bless my dealings with all who surround me. Teach me to treat all that comes to me throughout the day with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. In all my deeds and words, guide my thoughts and feelings. In unforeseen events, let me not forget that all are sent by you. Teach me to act firmly and wisely without embittering or embarrassing others. Give me strength to bear the fatigue of the coming day with all that it shall bring. Direct my will. Teach me to pray. I think that's the preparation to walk in peace. John Wesley believed that it was the peace of Christ resident in us that qualified us to be messengers of Christ in the world. So that when you are living in peace, then you can walk in peace, and then you are able to share the peace that you have with others that are around you. So walking in peace is the method, and living in peace personally, is the fulfillment of the goal. If I, if I will embrace the peace of Christ by my commitments to how I treat others, how I speak, how I act, how I trust God moment by moment to lead me, I can receive his peace and then I'm able to share his peace. The receiving and sharing of peace is walking in peace. I am grateful, however, that Jesus knows something that we all know, or at least suspect, and that is walking in peace and being messengers of Christ in this culture is hard. And sometimes doing that job doesn't feel very peaceful. And so, as I mentioned, there's a progression in this story, right? He sends us what we need to do the job. Gives us what we need. So my son Gregory just got a new job with Erickson. 
and he is now climbing cell phone towers. That's what every parent wants their child to do. Frightening. But they don't just say, hey, see that 300-foot tower? Go climb that and show us you can do it. That's not how they proceed. What they do is they put you through all these examinations, physical exams, all these exams. Then they fly you down to Texas, and you have three weeks of aggressive training. Three weeks of aggressive training. And then they give you all kinds of equipment. And I can't pronounce the names of all the equipment. I know there's carabiners, and I know there's pelican hooks, maybe, or I don't know what they are ropes and this and and there's so much equipment they gave him a truck to carry all the equipment in because you can't do this job unless you are trained you have the equipment you're able to do it safely and then after all the training they put him in a crew with other people who have experience and they show him the ropes so to speak okay they they don't just send you out there. They have people with you as you learn how to do the job. Jesus didn't exactly give us a tool. He didn't send us what we need. He sent us who we need. Because the third part of this passage is, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Why is this gift necessary? Why, why is it impossible to even think about walking in peace unless the Holy Spirit resides in us? Well, he is the empowerment for the work of Christ. He is the gift, the down payment on the peace of Christ. And if he is not resident in us, if he has not helped us do this, we can't pull it off. When we attempt to do it in our own strength, we fail, we stumble. But Jesus breathes on his disciples. This, this is an earnest of Pentecost, John Wesley says. And when he says an earnest of Pentecost, he sort of means like a down payment. This is the giving of the Spirit to his disciples that is sort of predicting the day when God will pour out his Spirit on all humanity in just a few short days after this day. You say, well, why did they really need that? Well, if you turn over to Acts chapter 5 and verse 27, we have this little snippet of what is ahead for the apostles. This is Acts 5.27. When they had brought them, Peter and the apostles, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How are you going to stand when you are called on the carpet for your faith? How will you stand when things get rough? Well, you will stand with the equipment that God has given you, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to stand. Equipment's not exactly the right word. It's the presence of God himself with us that makes all the difference. Some years ago, I had a parishioner who uh, had a gambling problem. We talked and I understood that um, he owed a bookie a great deal of money and that he was going to have to, on Saturday night, meet that bookie in a shady part of South Providence to figure out what they were going to do about this amount of money that was owed. He didn't have the money. I didn't have the money. The meeting was going to have to take or there would be ramifications. I offered to go with him without telling Nancy um, to help set up the terms of the repayment and just to be with him for moral support. I was very afraid. But I was more afraid to send him to the dark corners of South Providence alone. The Holy Spirit is an equipment, a tool for us to use. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God that is in us and stands with us and goes with us wherever we have to go. He is present now and always. But sometimes we act as if we're clueless to his presence. And you can't expect the comfort and the support of the Holy Spirit if you don't pay any attention to the fact that he's present with you. He is the empowerment for service. He enables us by going with us. Think about that. God goes with us. And we're told that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that we can be his witnesses, that we can be his ambassadors. And so I'm curious. How much attention do you pay to the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do we seek his counsel? Do we acknowledge his presence? We have the opportunity this morning again to remember that God is going to walk with us to help us walk in the way of peace. I'm going to send Michael and Carla out at this moment. And as they go to prepare for baptism, oh yeah, Chima too. You remember that the words that they use to promise to follow Christ all the days of their lives is, we will with God's help, right? We're not expecting them to be able to do this on their own. We're expecting them to be victorious with the help of God. And so the promise they make is the promise that we make as we remember our baptism, right? We remember what we've promised to God. He remembers that we're dust. And so he comes along and walks beside us and can enable us to be the victorious Christians he calls us to be if we will attempt it with his help. And so the question is, 
will we appropriate the help that is ours? He's told us that forgiveness is available. He's told us that he will be with us to the end of the age. We're reminded when he offers us his peace that God really is for us. He really is. I know there have been days, especially over the past two years, where some of us have scratched our head and said, if God is for us, I don't understand what's happening to me. There have been days like that. But we have to trust that the kingdom is moving forward, that the king is sovereign, and that God is working his purpose out in the world. It's not a terrible thing to wonder what's going on. I think that's what Jesus says on the cross when he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Right? Had the Father forsaken him? Heavens no. Of course not. But in that particular moment, things look so dark that Jesus is wondering, what is going on here? But we can trust by faith that God is for us, that he offers us forgiveness, that he sends to us the Holy Spirit to accompany us each of our days. And what we must do in order to walk in his peace is to acknowledge the presence of the Spirit, to listen and seek the counsel of the Holy Spirit, and to obey the Spirit when he speaks so that the peace of Christ might reside in us. I want to charge you this morning, once again, to remember your baptism, to remember the promise to serve Christ, to make Jesus Lord, and to remember that Jesus speaks to you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent him, he sends you. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Sing with me. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Sing in our town. In our town, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In our town, Lord, be glorified today. And now may the peace of Christ be yours. May you walk in the peace of Christ. May you live in the peace of Christ. May your lives proclaim the peace of Christ. To the glory of God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.